0: All right. Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space Book Club. I think everything's working now. I think we've got a whole bunch of people in in chat here. Uh, you're watching Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by Carrie. Carrie, say something.
1: Hi, Carter. Happy Sunday.
0: Happy Sunday. Oh, so, we, sh-
1: we should say it's a uh, happy birthday to Chris in the UK. I don't know if he's able to join us today, but it's his birthday.
0: Oh, okay. Cool. Well, Carrie... Um, I think was this your book pick? I feel like it was your book pick. Um, oh,
1: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it was fine. It was a good book. Okay. It was a good pick. Uh,
1: yeah, it was tough read. But
0: let's it's we're talking we're gonna talk about ordinary men, reserve police battalion one oh one and the final solution in Poland. So right away from the title, you know it's not gonna be a fun read. Uh by Christopher Browning. Um and we've got, I don't know, probably a dozen panelists today, a dozen people in book club. So, welcome everyone to Book Club. Uh, Carrie, do you want to do you want to start with your general impressions? I mean, there's a lot to talk about with this book. So,
1: well, yeah, I I uh, this was actually something that was on Jordan Peterson's recommended book list, so that was part of the reason why I, I wanted to read it because, uh, especially because where we find our, ourselves in society, what's unfolding around us right now. You see a lot of people who are claiming that they are behaving uh, in a morally just way, when what I believe they're doing is conforming and following some kind of ideological authority, and uh, they claim to be on the right side of history. And I think, uh, I, you know, I'm all, I'm really fascinated in how ordin- why it is that you know the title of this book, "Ordinary Men." How do you get ordinary people to participate in atrocious things on a, on a magnificent scale. And, uh, so I thought this book might have some, you know, special relevance right now. And I think, uh, I think one way in which people you're able to motivate people to behave in evil ways is because of a lack of introspection that we have about our own capacity for evil. And so people who, um, a lot of the people on the i would say like the sjw left or the authoritarian left at this moment in history i think they believe they are acting it, they be- a lot of them are acting in good faith they think that they're on the you know that they're they're doing something moral and just and because of that lack of introspection i think it it sets them up to maybe start participating in the exact opposite without realizing they're doing it Um, So that was my reason for picking this book. Overall impressions, um, it was a lot of dates and there was so much, it was so thorough and so factual with so many dates and numbers and that it was hard for me to retain a lot of information until he got to the part about, um, you know, conformity and authority and the studies about, uh, about the psychological process of being indoctrinated ideologically. So that was my favorite part. Which was towards the
0: end. Yeah, it it you? was like uh, I did find it uh, a little bit too military history at the beginning of like this battalion did this and that battalion did that and that was a little bit difficult. But I didn't find the thing that, that I, I mean I'd love to hear from other people, but the I didn't find the psychological analysis portions to be new or the description of the atrocities like they were in line. Like they were what I expected, but, um, but what I really, what resonated with me, what I really liked, especially reading this now is that when he got to the analysis sections um, and both in the afterward and my, my version had a 25 years later thing section. um, I felt like what he was saying is very much in line with what we have been saying about the modern left. And it was, the parallels were quite striking to me. Um, And I mean, we can talk about some of them later, but I I highlighted a bunch of sections that were just, you could have been writing them about the modern left today, but he's writing them about Nazis in the early 1940s. And, um, And that was pretty scary. And right down to like the criticisms, the guy Goldhagen that was criticizing him, Basically, he was doing the univariate fallacy thing. Nope, there's only one reason, and this is what it is. Stop making it complex. The Germans are bad, bad, bad. Like that's basically his reason, right? Which is, to me, smacks entirely of what the left says. It's like it's that univariate solution to everything, and no nuance. And and um, that's what I really liked about this book is the the the, the analysis really resonated with me and seemed to really parallel everything that we're saying about the the left
2: yeah who else is here well, anybody so, else have some go ahead yeah i'm here christina. Hi, christina um i read before i read this i read i think it was roy Baumeister. uh he wrote violence inside human evil inside human violence and cruelty and i think that that really really breaks things down and he breaks down evil into like instrumental evil um ideological evil, and that there are different kinds of evil at play, like some of these people were doing it because they wanted um, security in their jobs. Some people were just convinced that they're going up against bad people. And I think what we're facing right now is the ideological evil, where people have convinced themselves that their cause is so just, and they are fighting people who are so bad, That then anything you do becomes justified. And I think you've heard where terrorists say, you know, they'll go, How can you blow up a building full of innocent children? And they'll go, There are no innocents. And, um, you know, that's where it's really easy to get sucked in to where you start viewing your opponents as being so evil and your cause is so just that anything you do is justified. And we see that in Antifa where they've got that bias any means necessary. You know, they really have soul.
3: Something I noticed is liberals tend to assume people
4: are inherently good. This denies personal responsibility and it makes crime, poverty, mental illness and suffering always the fault of an imperfect society. Therefore, the logical solution is we have to remake society out of utopian impulse and antifa is sitting there going we need to impose socialism environmental rationing etc i was like you haven't looked at history of how racist socialism and communism is from the soviet union persecuting and relocating ethnic minorities to china rounding up the muslim ergures and they're trying And when you sit there and try to do utopianism and you don't end murder and you don't end corruption and you don't end dissidents, okay, we're going to have our scapegoat group that we blame for a lot of European history. It was the Jews, the Soviets also blamed the Kulaks who were the middle-class farmers that were a little bit better than the peasants. Uh, You've often seen blame of the religious, which is also happening in our society. Uh, You get blaming of various political groups hence the demonization of conservatives right now. And it's like, we want utopia. We want a perfect society. You're in the way. We're good. We want it better. You're evil. If you don't go along, we have to suppress you, oppress you, or kill you to get paradise on earth. And that's the logical flow you see and I'm quoting a lot from Peterson, but from other sources as well, from Pol Pot's Cambodia to Antifa and by any means necessary today. The only solution for them is more liberal power, more liberal government, all in the name of creating perfection. And history doesn't matter. That's not real communism. History doesn't matter. We're different.
0: Yeah. One of of the things that struck me was the... You know, the, in the analysis, the, the author specifically talking about how the Nazi culture rejected the enlightenment and rejected enlightenment values, um, which is, again, what we're seeing from the radical left today. I mean, um, just remember, we talked the other day about how individual rights is now uh, considered dog whistling for, for quote, white supremacy. Uh, well, I mean, let me just read this passage in, um, on my version. It's page 217. It's in the afterword. And it says, it was precisely the Nazis' demolition of democracy and the restoration of an authoritarian political system, emphasizing communal obligations over individual rights that gave them legitimacy and popularity among significant segments of the German population. It's exactly that. It's, it's basically what he's saying is it's collectivism over individualism that enabled all of this behavior. And, um, you know, I just finished reading uh, Stanley Milgram's book about the prison experiment, or sorry, uh, the Milgram experiment. And um, it's, it's fascinating to me that both you could see in this book, both the appeal to authority happening and the, and the conformity pressures that the soldiers had. Um, Like, The, you know, one thing Milgram pointed out was the more, the more you could separate a task into different things. So like one person gave this order and the next person did this step and the next person did that step and the next person did that step, the less ownership anyone in that chain felt for, uh, the moral, uh, consequences of what they were doing or the, the the moral weight of what they were doing. So it's like, well, I was just told to move the Jews to this spot. Well, I just moved the Jews from this spot to this spot. Well, all I did was do that. Well, I just shoot the guy that was in front of me. I don't, you know, I didn't put him there. So they like, they all were able to blame authority. Um, and something that Milgram talks about, which I think this book touched on a little bit was uh, when, when people get into that mindset of, abdicating moral responsibility to authority, the way that they start to measure their own goodness is how well they perform the task requested of them, because they've, they've removed the moral, uh, they've, re- they've removed the idea that they have to choose the task morally, and so the task could be immoral. That's now someone else's responsibility. To be a good person, they now have to do the task as, as well as they can, and that's why you get people really fastidious about you know, train schedules to Auschwitz and all that kind of stuff. They're doing, they're doing the task. They're they trying to perform well. Their new version of being moral is how well they listen to authoritarians and how
5: well they, how well they perform their task. Um, yeah. Hey Carter, that what makes page me- was that on? That, the, the collectivism versus individualism thing? Okay.
0: Um, there was a bunch of quotes. The one I just read was page, in my book, it was page 217 in the afterword. Okay. Um, but there's a bunch. I mean, there's stuff in the in the twenty five years later section, um, you know. But that you, the one I just read was on page two seventeen.
1: You're also making me think of how they, uh, how how they when they were given the option. I like I think it was towards the beginning where where they were asked before one of the first mass killings. If anyone doesn't think they're up for it, you can leave now. And twelve people left out of like five hundred um but then in subsequent killings when they weren't given that option it was like I think he used the word relief it was a sense of relief as if they didn't have to make the choice you know this is what uh, there's no choice given it's not my fault because this is what we're
0: yeah that was one of the things that Milgram noticed was that like when the people were performing the tasks they almost all of them found the tasks very distasteful they were disgusted by the fact that they quote had to do this and so they didn't want to be in a situation where they're being told to do something in like that choice, I would imagine, actually gives them more angst because now they have to be involved in the decision. They want it removed from them. Um, and even though a lot of these people uh, obviously killed the Jews and behaved in this important way, uh, they also held this vision of themselves. as like, well, I was against it. I, I thought it was disgusting or I didn't like it. Um, and that's kind of their rationalization for their own, they're protecting their own sense of goodness, right?
5: Can I give my overall impression here, Carter? So it reminded me of what both you and Carrie said, something about the beginning of the book with all the numbers and all the steps. And I got kind of bored with it. I was like, okay, after, and I hate saying this out loud where I get bored of reading about 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people murdered. Um, But overall, it started to make me think about um, them having to make sure that they pointed out the very specific manner in which they wanted to show the world what actually happened and that there were records and that this is not just um, an assumption that it happened because I know that there's large groups of people out there who still don't believe that it was as bad as they want you to think it was. So I think that is one aspect of them going through all of the names. Um, And they kind of did that in, I think it was the Iliad where Homer specifically went through and named all of these characters that weren't main characters, but as a way to remind you of the depth at which all of those people were individuals and mattered. And then also, that the fact that they kept these records struck me as unusual in the sense that if I was going to murder somebody, the last thing I'm going to do is write a blog about it. So if they're writing about it and keeping these records, that tells me that there's something in their minds that separates them from it or makes them think that that is a normal thing to do. So the fact that they have the these extensive records should tell us that there was something that told them that this was okay so they went so far mentally into whatever their task was which was just mass murder that they felt okay keeping records and weren't worried about people oh here look at you did this that's what really struck me about that part
6: I think the records are part of it. Like that's adds legitimacy to them. So the fact that they kept detailed records, they say, this is a military campaign. The orders are from above, like the records help everybody say, this is what we should do. And, and that take, takes people out of the personal responsibility. Like, okay, this person ordered this, we killed 2,742 people today. You know, they like write it all down and, and save it. And I also think, Another factor of that is that it is Germans. I don't know how many, you know, Germans. I've spent a lot of time in Germany for work. Like they don't need speed limits on the road. Like Germans, you just tell them drive safe and that works fine. You know, they don't have turnstiles on the subways in Hamburg. That's where these people are from. They're Hamburg police. Like you're just supposed to pay and Germans don't don't need a turnstile. They don't even need to show anybody a ticket. Everybody just pays because that's the rule. So some of it could be, German. I think it would be harder in the U.S. for this to happen, but not impossible.
4: There was a certain morality notes where I saw the morality of things like the men were uncomfortable killing women and children and protested it, or they were told to kill the little kids. And at the gathering point, there were so a lot of women carrying the children because the guys couldn't do it until the people were lined up at the the edge of the pits and then shooting from across the pit. So it wasn't, I'm bayoneting a woman and baby, it's I'm shooting this figure in the distance, I don't care, or less so.
5: Yeah, and to your point, Keith, I remember reading something about, um, on my book it was on page 136. So this is the the copy that I have. Um, But some of the Jews thought that the utilitarian manner in which the Germans behaved would be a saving grace for those individual Jews if they were useful to the Germans because they thought they're so utilitarian if I show that I can be productive with the war effort, if I'm working in the machine shop or doing this and that and the other, that their um, salvation would be their labor. So I think that fits into your description of um, their on the ground perception of German personalities.
6: And a lot of the Jews were German, so they're familiar with it. They had the same policy. I I wonder if that's a factor in why so many of the Jews just went along. They told them to walk over here, lay down in this ditch. They just did it all. Like, they're Germans, too. Uh,
0: Yeah. You know, um, one thing that I think at the...
2: necessarily...
0: Go ahead. Was that Christina? Go ahead. Oh, I think
7: oh, Christina's man.
8: video is yeah, frozen. Concerned.
9: Okay.
0: Yeah, I think Christina's I, I can't um, hear Christina. I don't know if other people can.
1: No. Hey Christina, um, I think your um your Wi-Fi connection or whatever is uh low because you're nobody can you're frozen. You know we're
0: we're we're gonna let you be frozen, Christina. Uh, Sorry.
2: The of
0: it's weird because she appears muted, but to me. Sure. But we're yeah, still here. Um I was reading. Yeah, and she's gone. Okay. Um I'll I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say something about what Keith was just talking about. Uh the um the, the guy criticizing Browning. Um what was his name? Gold, uh, Hagen. He was talking about the, he talked about the difference between German culture, you know, fundamentally. Uh, and, you know, obviously his argument that this was a uniquely German thing, but, but, and maybe that was a contributing factor because Keith, you're talking about this like kind of obeying authority kind of thing. Um, but one thing that I hadn't realized about Germany too much, and it makes sense knowing, knowing the history, I guess this makes sense. Um, they, I was surprised to learn that they didn't really embrace the Enlightenment fully, which again makes sense. So let me just read this passage from the 20 25 years later section on in my book. It's page 240. It says the emotional power and need for belonging embodied these two myths. I, he, he's talking about um, a myth of like the, the people's community and a myth called Shaf, which is like a soldiers' camaraderie between soldiers. Um, Enabled the Nazis to preside over a moral revolution in which the Western tradition of universalism, humanity, and individual responsibility based on a guilt culture was replaced by a shame culture that elevated loyalty to and standing within the group to be the new moral fulcrum of German society. Um, and there's a couple spots in this book where he talks about the Germans explicitly rejecting parts of the Enlightenment um, and. I think that probably made German society particularly vulnerable to this, right? Because they still had a, a collectivist mentality. Conformity was a, a strong um, force.
1: Well, I, I mean, is is that's, that back? goes to that goes to your point earlier about the parallels with the modern left. I mean, rejecting Enlightenment values. Where have we seen that lately? You know.
0: Right. Um, right. Um, there's another There's another path. I'm sorry, I'm just reading passages, but I, I, I love these because they, yeah. they, they, they parallel so well. On page 195, again in the afterword in my, my book, he says, according to the cultural ideological approach, the distorted and incomplete embrace of the enlightenment by some German intellectuals, followed by the dis- their despair over an increasingly endangered and dissolving traditional world, led to a continuing rejection of liberal democratic values and traditions on the one hand, and a selective reconciliation with aspects of modernity on the other, producing what Jeffrey Herf termed a particular, particularly German reactionary modernism. So again, it's the German intellectuals, which shouldn't surprise us because we know the Frankfurt School was full of these people, <laughs> all collectivists um, who were kind of rejecting this enlightenment thing. And they, they didn't like how the enlightenment was going. And they, um, they never really got there. They, they were not happy with the French revolution or anything like that. I mean, it makes it easy for someone to come to power and leverage uh, collectivism and brotherhood and national pride um, and even racial purity in order to, you know, convince people of this kind of stuff.
5: And I wonder if you're if you aren't embracing enlightenment values and you're not embracing some religious spiritual values um, what are your values exactly like even right now, as people are on the left rejecting enlightenment values, they are also talking about the churches and they often reject religious values. Um, what's left like what well, I, I don't know what they and maybe that's a part of the problem i don't know how somebody like that would answer that question um but you know what are the roots of whatever it is you say you believe um, that produces whatever action you're taking
6: i think one of the problems with that question is you have to first decide if they have any values like you're making an assumption that they have values and i don't see that Not at all
1: at- <laughs> I think i don't know I they do replace saying, him with they do go
0: ahead Carrie.
1: i think yeah i think what thomas is saying is <clears throat> um well it makes me think of this part i, w- I wanted to talk about actually but this part about uh, that he was the milgram experience he was saying experiments he was saying that action followed ideological belief once you had people aligned with an ideological belief then the action would follow easily easily and the, you know, Carter, you were talking earlier about parallels with the, with the modern left. And one of the big ones I saw was, um, you know, it, it was talking about the way that they trained these officers. And it said, in addition to, uh, on, on my copy of the book, I think I have the same one as Thomas, this is page 177, but it said, in addition to um, being trained in physical fitness, use of weapons and police techniques, they all battalions were to be strengthened in character and ideology. Basic training included a one month unit on ideological education. One topic for the first week was, quote, race as the basis of our worldview, end quote. Okay, parallels with the modern left. They're all reading white fragility like it's the Bible right now. You know, that. what is the basis of that belief system? Race, it's the same thing. Race, sex, identity is at the, is at the core of the belief system. That you're supposed to look at the world, well, the same way as they said here. Race. Race is the basis of our worldview. Um, but then it goes on and says officers were required to attend one-week workshops that included one hour of ideological instruction for themselves and one hour of practice in the ideological instruction of others. What does that remind you of? I'm in a ton of SJW groups. This is what they're doing yeah they are they are e ev- well yeah there's evangelicals they're they're leftist evangelicals the ones that, that yeah, i'm seeing like, around me right yeah. now yeah exactly they're like all these companies now i know um i've heard from people i know dr k on her show was talking about having heard from people who uh their workplaces are requiring them to receive ideological instruction now
0: oh we've seen ha- police departments Sending out things, asking for ideological instruction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really By the way, Carrie, now. I had that exact quote highlighted as well. It's so poignant. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I feel like, oh, that's exactly the left right now. Race is the basis of our worldview.
1: Yeah, okay. and everybody needs to be instructed. I don't know if you guys saw, but saw this. But I went to the Unsafe Space Book Club page on Facebook yesterday just to see if anybody had questions about joining the chat and uh, at the top was a sponsored ad. I took a screenshot of it from Facebook and it was like, uh, join us for, it basically was an ideological instruction seminar. Join us at Facebook community where we're gonna hear from black community leaders on ideological instruction. That's not the word they use, but that's exactly what it was. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Facebook is is now <laughs> indoctrinating people. And we can all, from our pages, we see the advertisement and can click on it and just sit in on an indoctrination class. Um, yeah, uh, I don't my- know
5: my wife is a psychologist and she's in private practice and there's social media groups that she's a part of. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's starting to happen there.
9: I'm wondering also just to take this back just a little bit, um, when you were talking about, uh, the Germans taking the enlightenment or kind of rejecting the enlightenment values. I think, maybe they they took the parts that they wanted for scientific advancement and you know um technologies and things like that to serve their their state ideals or whatever and i wonder what part the mythology played in that you know creating this fake mythology of greatness and um purity and all of these things and I wonder um, what are the parallels to what we're living right now. What's what's the fake mythology that is being pumped out to you know t- to get everybody drunk on um, mm-hmm. how right they are, you know, to fight and mob and and um, call everybody
5: evil. I, th- I think it's very much what we would call the messianic tradition, where. there's in Christianity and Judaism, there's a Messiah coming, so we're moving towards a better situation for the world. Um, I think it's like in the book of Jeremiah and the letters from Paul, that's a very much where we get this idea that we're moving towards progress. And then you see it in, so long story short, the idea is at the very end that you don't need necessarily the laws of the land or the laws of man, or even the Bible itself, because the laws of God and righteousness are written on the heart of every man and woman.
9: It's almost like they're taking uh, the positive things and just turning them completely upside down and corrupting and I don't know, like infecting them with some kind of disease where it, you know, it, start, it starts out as a good idea or a good thing um, and then they just, just use it for their nefarious
5: Yeah. Well, even with that tradition, you can see exactly where they take it because the Marxist tradition says exactly the same thing in some sense to where socialism goes to communism, then the state, which is the law, dissolves because all people are on board with the program. So the law is written on your heart. You don't need it anymore because everybody is a good person. So uh, there's a lot of that tradition that's already woven into, like, their ideology. So they're taking what Marx says and saying, yeah, that's good stuff, which has already been going on for thousands of years. The difference is they get to make the decision and man is at the top as opposed to having something above individual people that guides us in a certain direction. Yeah.
0: You know, It's interesting about this. Sorry, I just want to... Um... <sighs> I, I, this is a, this is a pattern that I think is just, I I don't, I don't think it's unique to the left or the right. This is power hungry people. This, these are people who want power. And I see this over and over again in, I think basically every major leftist and rightist government, if you want to call it rightist government, which is they, 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 See the progress of the Enlightenment, right? They see the industrial or technical progress of the Enlightenment, and they want its products, right? Marx wanted the yes. products, and so what did he say? Seize the means of production, right? Mm-hmm. That seize the means of production could be applied to any group. It could be applied to Nazis who want to seize the means of production. I mean, you know, seize the things, get the Jews out. They need to own it. Um, you can apply that to a group. You can apply it to, to a, a dictator. You can apply that to the proletariat but none of them recognize that the means of production are the means of production is a free society where individuals are free to use their brains and have individual rights. Like that's the actual means of production. They're not the means of production aren't factories that come down like, like manna from heaven and land magically in, in your city. The means of production are, is capitalism. Basically it is the free, it is individual freedom. That's the means of production. And all of these people, I just, I, I think all of these ideologies, they just look at those, those products and they think to themselves, how can we, they forget where they came from. So they're ignorant of how those products came to being. And now that they're here, it's like a, it's like a, a savage, right? Who like doesn't understand how the cell phone works. But now that it's here, he's going to use it to hit a rock or whatever. Like he's, he needs it for something. So they want to grab the stuff that they don't understand the origins of. For themselves and use it to propel themselves into power. And some of them do it through appealing to the proletariat. Some of them appeal to German nationalism. Um, but it doesn't matter. They're, it's all the same kind of. It's a very primitive mentality. I don't. It, I, yeah, I just they're it essentially really the
9: same. Um, I grew up in Lithuania, which was part of the Soviet Union for you know 50 years or so, and um, I saw the. I saw. I was about 13 when all of that changed and it really is the same and i remember um you know just in history classes it was always you know the nazis were horrible they were bad they were evil but somehow the communists didn't get the same bashing and i was like it was the same they were doing essentially the same thing the same kind of evil um and and the results the outcomes were the same you know millions dead um, so they're really, they're, they their tactics are the same. They might speak different things,
1: but <laughs> they really just, just carry out the same evil. They behave the same. I I yeah. think there's also something dangerous. And I was thinking about what you just, what you just said about, um, how, wait, how do you pronounce your name? Sagita. Sagita. Nice to meet you. I was thinking about nice what you said meet. about how you were taught that they're evil, right? And we, and here in the states of course we're taught of course Nazis are evil but I think there's something about um just learning that uh, people were evil that helps you separate yourself from imagining yourself ever in that situation where you just kind of look back in you know I, I as a kid like looked back at atrocities uh, that happened and just thought like oh those evil people you know it was sort of from this elevated place of moral superiority and and I think that makes us. Um, I was thinking about where we're at right now in society and how, I think a lot of people have just imagined that we could never end up that this could never happen. Something like this could never happen right. happen at this time, and that those were evil people and we're so evolved and we're so you know different than them. And um, and and one of the things that you know I did at least learn about the evil of Nazis. I did like you. I did not learn about the evil. Of what happened in the Soviet Union, of communism, uh, we weren't taught about it in the same way. But one of the things about learning about the the evil of of the, the Nazis was that it was always presented to me as something on the right, um, instead of it just being presented as authoritarianism or as what it was, which was national so socialism. Um, and it and it also um, I, I just wanted to read. I, I don't want to hijack this, but I wanted to read one one quick thing that totally relates. This is. This is a piece by Samuel Say. Uh, We got to interview him on the podcast for an episode of Deprogrammed. And he wrote a piece called Social Justice is a Threat to Human Rights and the Gospel. He writes a lot from the Christian perspective. But he says, um, he talks about uh, in 1920, this young activist who organized a public meeting in a major city inside the hall, which held hundreds of poor and underprivileged people He delivered a speech describing how his ethnic people were oppressed and burdened, exploited and betrayed, excluded and bullied by a more privileged group. And then he goes on to quote Hitler. It it was Hitler. Sorry, I gave it away. But he quotes this activist, Hitler, who said, we do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if it is not built on internal social justice. And so we have joined forces with this knowledge. We realized That if this movement does not penetrate into the masses to organize them, then everything will be in vain, then we will never be able to liberate our people and we will never be able to think of rebuilding our country. And then I'm just going to skip on down a bit to that was Hitler, then this is Samuel speaking again, he says social justice was the basis for the stripping of rights away from Jews. Um, social justice was the basis for discrimination against Jews in the Soviet Union, social justice was the basis for the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, social justice is the basis for South Africa's initiative to strip po- property rights from white farmers, social justice is the basis for stripping a pre-born baby's right to life, um, that last one of course he's making a pro-life argument there but uh, I think his point being when I when I first read that I got chills because I had never learned about the Nazis as being like as people believing they were carrying out something good, something that had to be done. You know, it was always like these evil people, how could they do that? Well, how do we, how are these people now? I look around me, I'm like, these people are perpetrating, they're pushing forward an evil belief system, my old belief system into the world. How are they doing it? How are they getting companies and corporations to speak it? How are they getting, you know, soccer moms and churches to preach it? But they think it's something good that has to be done. They think it's to liberate people. It's it's mind-blowing. Would you read that, Gary? It's a piece by Samuel Say, S-E-Y. We can put it in the link after after the discussion. Um it's yeah. called Social Justice is a Threat to Human Rights and the Gospel. So he obviously writes from a Christian point of view, but um, but it's a really great piece, even if you're not a Christian, i suggest you read it, because it just kind of opened my eyes a little bit about I didn't realize. Hitler talked about social justice, he did, <laughs> you know? Anyway, sidetracked from the book, but I hope, I think it was relevant to your point about what you learned about the Nazis, you know? I, it's just, it's just something about this book. And he, he, at the beginning in his preface, when he kind of talked about how he knew he would face criticism for trying to humanize these people. And he was like, not to forgive and not to excuse, but so that we can understand you
0: know? Right. Well, obviously the threat, right, is if we don't understand how it happens to ordinary men, then we're not, we're disarmed uh, when it happens to us, right? Which is where we are right now. I don't think anyone, you know, if you suggest, if you go out onto the street corner right now and suggest that uh, the radical left is in any way similar to Nazis, uh, I think 90% of the population will laugh you off the street. They, they think that's ridiculous, um, because it doesn't, it doesn't seem that way. We're not like that at all. That's just the the crazy left where, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't ever do that. If you, if you use hyperbole and say, well, you know, uh, someday Sean King is going to be asking for all of the white people to get on the box car. Everyone thinks that's ridiculous, but you know, this, I don't see us being that different from early 1930s Germany right now. Um, Maybe we'll go through our Weimar Republic hyperinflation phase and have to deal with something like this. Like I, I don't, as a backlash. So I, I, I think you're right. We, it, it totally disarms you. By the way, Sigita, I did not realize where you're from, but I wore this shirt apparently for you today. This is my communism killed hundred million people. Oh, no. And all I got was this lousy t-shirt shirt. Sure. So, so there you go. I was
9: going to wear a hat. <laughs> or a crown or something to make a feel safe and unsafe space. This is the only
1: <laughs> place I feel safe. So, But I didn't make it. But thank you for showing your t-shirt. Carter, I bet that t-shirt makes you popular at uh, resist rallies.
0: That one, and <laughs> I have I have one with Kay's face on it with just a, a line through it. That one is, people love that one.
5: Oh, so yeah. Carrie, I quickly tried to look up that article and I found the Twitter link and Twitter has now said that The link you are trying to access has been identified by Twitter or our partners as being potentially harmful or associated with a violation of
4: Twitter's- Wow.
1: Wow, they did that to my article too. I wonder if Samuel even knows they've, that's amazing. Can you get to the link or you have to go through an extra step to read this article?
5: An extra step, I had to copy and paste the link so I can see this um, Christian man's uh, view of (laughs) history.
4: Unbelievable. Well, you know, a lot of people say, oh, these extra hurdles don't violate your rights. Well, big tech and Google ads and such provide a lot of data. When you require them to copy the link and post it in a browser instead of just clicking it, when you throw up the interspatial warning of this is offensive or this is, uh, you know, fact checks they know that you're cutting into 20, 30, 50, 80% of the traffic and the readers. That's why they do it is they're not censoring it. We're just getting in the way, knowing that we're hurting its reach.
0: Yep. You know, something else about the, you know, in relation, you know, back back to the book in relation to uh, the parallels between what happened in Germany and what's happening now, is you know i we talked about this we talk about this a lot right the large majority of people in the us aren't actually radical leftists they kind of think it's stupid um they're just afraid they're just afraid of of being called racist or whatever and i had not heard this quote before but i heard it in the book for the first time um on page my book it's on page 201 which is in the afterword and uh he's quoting someone named kershaw <laughs> and he said The road to Auschwitz was built by hatred, but paved with indifference. And that quote just really, really resonated with me because I don't think Antifa and the radical left are, they're not really the problem fundamentally. Like, yes, they're evil, but uh, the problem is all the indifference and all the people who are going to not say anything and let them march right into Washington. Or our even
6: universe. though the Nazis did get in by voting, it said in the book that I think at the I... peak it was thirty-seven percent was all that supported it. Right,
0: it a wasn't a majority.
6: Yep, not a majority.
9: <laughs> well, there are some that just make make it palatable, almost fashionable, and make a conscious choice we, we- to follow that ideology, and then others feel as if they're you know they're somehow uh, in the wrong if they don't say something or you know I I don't know what draws people into it but the majority is really just bystanders kind of like in the book too Um, you know just standing aside even those who didn't participate in the atrocities or the killings they kind of stood aside almost feeling innocent like they didn't do anything wrong
0: Right, right. Oh, oh, I didn't actually, I wasn't the guy who pulled the trigger. I was the guy who, you know, guarded this thing over here. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, you know, um, yeah, yeah.
6: And they took, you know, as far as ordinary men, they took mostly policemen. They're like city policemen, mostly from Hamburg and got them to do that. And something that's a little scary is when the war was over, almost all of them went back to being policemen in Hamburg.
10: Yeah. yeah.
1: And a lot of them, I know, like when he mentioned what their jobs were, cause they were reserve policemen. So they had, they, a lot of them were, um, had other jobs that would say, you know, this police officer, da, 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 a barber, you know, or this police officer, an accountant. And it's like and a dentist, you know, it's just some, something mind blowing to imagine, you know, this dentist who's, who, who's killing people. I, I don't, I don't know. It just,
0: Yeah, and actually, I mean, some of them even cited their jobs as reasons why they were like, could not, they got away with not actually doing shooting, like, well, I didn't have to worry about a career in the police, because I had my other business to go to. So I could sit back and just, you know, lead people to the grave, but not shoot, right? Um, And that was their moral justification, I guess, or their practical justification
6: and he does he does repeatedly mention that it was a random cross-section but i don't think that's a random cross-section like people who volunteer to be police or join the police force or or even a reserves that's not a random selection like that's well his argument
0: though, but his argument was it was random because it got you out of the draft and i think that does massively randomize it right right i would agree with you normally but like i, w- I was thinking about that I'm like if there was a draft and I'm, you know, I've got a kid and a wife, if there was a draft and they're like, you can be a policeman where you'll probably get to stay home or you have to go fight on the, or you can be drafted. I might be like, I'll be a cop. Right. I, he, they didn't know they were going to get deployed to Poland. They were supposed to be st- kind of staying in Germany. Right. Um, I mean, there- I might not actually, but a lot of people might make that decision of like, I'm going to hedge my bets here. Right. I'm going if to be stuck, sucked into, into this war one way or another. I might as well do it in the safe, a quote safe route.
8: And I was struck by how quickly the mindset changed because some of the some of the Jews were fighting alongside in World War One, uh, with them in World War One, and then 20 years later in 1960s, it was unthinkable that they could have had that mindset to look at the jews the way they did and that was a what a 40 30 40 year span of how quickly things changed and of course now with our modern technology things can change within three days it's astounding to me it's chilling you're right the time elapsed
1: it's not very long no.
0: you know and it seemed like the Nazi leadership was aware of the generational differences between attitudes when they were trying to figure out who should be doing this and who should be doing that. I think they, they seemed pretty aware, like, oh, these kids grew up, so they're going to be more indoctrinated. They grew up in this time. And these other people are going to have a harder time doing this stuff. So
1: yeah, um, the, the Hitler youth. Well, look, look, who yeah. are we indoctrinating right now? Who's leading this? They're always talking about the youth. are leading this movement. Who's leading SJW ideology right now? the youth because we've indoctrinated them and now we're indoctrinating them at an even younger age into this belief system so who knows where we're going to be at when the people who are now the kids who are like in kindergarten first and third second grade right now those kids what's going to happen when they're the
3: leaders
0: yeah in 30 years i shudder to think what, what well,
3: they'll he, do. Did, he did say that um The younger people were more interested in the killing and and improving their their situation in this police battalion. Um, He also said that a lot of the people who joined up for this were. I can't remember exactly how he put it. I only read about 15 percent of the book, to be honest with you. Um, He said that they did not like say they did not have their own businesses. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of the people on the left, they don't have their own businesses. They work for other people. Most yes. of the people I know on Facebook have their own businesses or have some kind of an interest in what they do. Um, so I think that that made a difference then, and I think it makes a difference now. You're right. well, not oh. creating. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. I thought it was interesting that the police demographics of the population they were using was very similar to our current one of it's local guys with a high school or slightly better education, and it was dominated by guys in the 30s and 40s with kids. And then they bring in the ideologues in their 20s who were pure believers and went, this is your new diversity training seminar, and the true believers are going to be the new heads of the department because they're so much more educated than you
0: you know it, yeah. it, just to to underscore this point that this can kind of happen anywhere and like i think we tend to i don't know if it's just americans generally but i think we tend to think that like oh look what those communists did in russia look what look what pol pot did look what mao did look what those germans did um if you read about world war 1 I, I mean just read 1418 or even if you read other losses uh us th- we Europeans were pretty horrible and atrocious like we did some absolutely disgusting horrific things to people. Um like it is not unique to one culture. This is a as long as you've got a culture that is susceptible to obeying authority and uh conformity, you can you can accomplish quite a lot. Like yeah, there's cool stories about World War 1 where people don't fire shots and there's kind of stories about camaraderie soccer game is between opposing sides, but there's also some pretty horrible slaughter of um, women and children and innocents. And it happens on both sides. It's not just the enemy doing that. Um, I think it's important to be aware of our own capacity for evil.
6: Yeah, the, the idea that it can't happen to Americans is wrong. Like I, you know, They brought up the My Lai massacre in, in Vietnam where, like 100 U.S. servicemen killed like 500 people, mostly women. They raped them, women, children. They just shot them in ditches. It's exactly the same. Uh, yep. And, and nobody stopped them except for there was one, one guy landed his helicopter and rescued some, uh, and they ostracized him for doing that. It could happen to Americans.
0: It has no, happened. So- yeah. 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 That's it's so sorry. devastating. I thought- no, go ahead.
7: Sorry. No, I thought it was pretty telling when I first read the when I read the book at the beginning, the first time the reserve police battalion was offered the opportunity to step away, like Carter was saying. Right. They, they were told, hey, we're going to do this. If somebody is not able to do it, step out. Now, at that time, they probably didn't know that nothing was going to happen to them. Right. The other thing I remember is that a lot of these guys were they had not been indoctrinated like maybe the younger people because they were an older group. So it shows you how easy it was after the first time they did or they started participating in this how they assumed that mentality and they like you said moral authority wasn't their own anymore they're like yep they told me to do this i'm almost like an extension of the leader or the head who's telling me that i have to do this and they sort of put they didn't think about it i mean this book should be something that every person today should read because we cannot forget that this type of thing can happen, and uh, like you said, right now people don't believe that something like this can happen, and that's the thing that is can really be very, very dangerous. You know yeah. how history repeats itself. Yeah. So we, yeah, and know, man,
1: manu can I just say something quickly? Manu,
7: Manny, yeah, go ahead. Manuel, Manny. Manu, nice Manny. to meet you. Manny. Nice to meet you too.
1: Um, something about that, like you said, they got. how they kind of got inured to it after the first time it became normal for them the really abnormal became normal but did anyone else notice like just how often in in the detailed part of the book where it gave all the dates and all the different massacres and just how often it talked about how drunk they were getting all the time and they would bring alcohol because how do you deal with that you know it's like you just check out like so many of them just getting wasted and um
0: it's I, a I way to deal with cognitive dissonance right? right is is to is to check out absolutely but the the other thing that i that i wanted to point out though is that it didn't and and i think this is this to me is quite fascinating it was something that milgram touched on and i think it was in this book as well they don't just get callous to the behavior they they start in order to make themselves feel better morally they have to start telling themselves a narrative that the person deserved it and it becomes easier and easier because Well, I did it before. If they didn't deserve it, that makes me a bad person. So they must have deserved it. So therefore they deserve it now in the future. And like, it's a self-perpetuating, you get, you spiral into this, this really, really evil mentality where you believe that what you're doing is righteous. And it might've started with, I'm not so sure. I feel pressure. I did it. Now I have to justify it. And that, that just gets, that's a slippery slope that just leads you to,
5: you know but and its own we're going the opposite direction here because they had to rationalize doing something they knew was bad and look how far they went with the violence. Today there's no rationalization. They, they believe already that they're doing something good. So imagine how much further you can go if you're not trying to rationalize something you know is bad as opposed to first starting off on a high horse. And That's the a scary the North- thought Thomas
8: yeah it is. but the normalizing of it like the 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 honeymooner you know the pregnant wife who wanted to watch that was very disturbing and then the entertainment group the the singers and actors that begged to be part of it to, to to let us have a turn I I can't even fathom that that part of it um the other part, too, that I just wanted to mention before is the, the one guy, Hoffman, with the stomach problems. Mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. stomach problems from reading this book. So can you imagine if he had any conscience whatsoever? It, it, it really just it, it destroyed his health. Um, and that's I mean, I guess that says something about him. But he you know, he I don't know. It, it, that well, was, but he it, subsequently it like
0: he didn't like that he didn't want his conscience, right. right? Cause he subsequently then like rose to prominence and was very True. successful in, in the military.
9: And he was a very strange case. I took he notes was. on that. He was such a different case, you know, he was, he was always saying how, you know, oh no, don't take me off the job. I'm, I'm all in it. And then he wouldn't participate. So what was going on there? He was very different from all the others.
4: What was interesting was he his illness was bad enough that he probably could have gotten a medical exemption mm-hmm. where they said, we're going to remove you from active duty because, I don't know if it's irritable bowel syndrome or ulcerative colitis or some para, you know, parasitic digestive tract worms, I don't know, but he could have gotten a medical exemption
8: to get out of it and didn't. But he always took to bed whenever they were getting ready mm-hmm. to do something so you know and then everybody started noticing that so i don't know and i think i i wrote down it was vegetative colitis i've never heard of that that's really kind of interesting maybe he couldn't eat vegetables i don't know
5: well it's funny i think it said afterwards when you know he he kept insisting it wasn't fake and they thought it was fake like what do you call it when you're faking an Ill- illness in the military like, okay. I mean, it's hypochondria like okay.
8: yeah. hypochondria I no,
5: that. there's something out there. there's some there's a different term we use.
1: Munchausen's? Oh. No.
0: No, that's it's like it's like a section something something when you do
5: that. I don't know. Oh, uh, oh, a um, military
1: term. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
5: Um, but when he got to the next unit, he seemed didn't he get back to normal and do a wonderful yeah. job in the next spot? So I think it was directly related to what he knew was wrong, but he didn't want to be derelict of his duty.
6: He, he hit it. He didn't want his officers above him to know. He didn't want the, the men below him to know. He actually wanted to be able to do it, but physically couldn't. And if I remember right, they said his later in his career was he successful. He went to the Russian front and he became a leader in like the military where now they're shooting military people. That's a totally different story.
0: Yeah, his, his bowels don't act up for that. Um, but by, by the way, can I really, really quickly thank Ken Libson who just gave us a super chat. We can't put super chats up on the screen because we're using Zoom right now uh, for book club. But I want to shout out and say thank you anyway. Sorry, go ahead. Whoever was going to speak.
4: I noticed a lot of the guys were quoting the, I don't want to let my teammates, my tribe, my friends down. So they were joining in, even though they had reservations. It wasn't just hiding in the anonymity of the mob, but I'm loyal to my friends. It's not fair to do it and not have, and not be involved. And then some of the other, and at other times they would cover for each other with, you shot one or two and then you went and hid by the trucks and I'll cover for you. So there was a lot of protecting each other as long as you're helping each other. But when one of the guys was trying not to and the ideologue says, make the ones who weren't shooting shoot. And some of the guys shot their first Jew, and one of the guys steadfastly refused. It was only that top officer who had given them the initial choice who protected him from the consequences, but he got socially ostracized. And it's like, we're all doing this nasty, dirty work. I'm going to hate you because you're not helping and joining in. And they were playing off of the friendship and camaraderie for the nefarious purposes.
6: They talked about the, the social ostracism and, and peer pressure and being part of the group as, as being more important than the orders. That's what the author talked about, Like that that was a major factor, that just you're in a group of buddies and you have to go along with what everybody's trying to do.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he he pointed out that even the people who didn't participate or or avoided trying avoided participation as, as quote much as they could, um, they didn't do it on. They didn't like voice moral concerns. They accepted the uh, the classification as weak, right? They knew that because of the the peer pressure, they would be viewed as as weak stomached, and instead of saying no. I'm just morally opposed to killing Jews who are innocent. Um, They, they couldn't even make that argument. They just were like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I'm going to be over here sweeping or whatever they were doing. Um, Yeah. I saw
7: that Carter, that what you're saying is that I have a a section that I had highlighted. And I think what happened with those guys is they obviously didn't want to confirm, conform to that, but they were not strong enough to sort of say, I'm not going to do this. And so they were not challenging the other people who were. They, they said, oh, I'm too weak, I can't do it. They were sort of downgrading themselves in front of everybody else. So they weren't, you know, challenging them and that's what they did. And uh, the scary part is how something so horrible has happened to the point when individually, each one of them probably at the beginning thought, this is horrible, we shouldn't be doing this. They eventually justified it little by little and they ended up killing millions of people you know, when individually they thought it was a bad thing, but at one point they, they basically let go of their personal values. Right. And they conformed to what, whatever the, the leadership was telling them to do.
8: And And then at the end,
7: yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, no, just to play on what you were saying, it was also easier for them when they didn't have to look at an individual Jewish person in the face before they killed them. That, that, it, they found it easier when it was removed, where they all lined up and shot instead of being assigned one person. And then you talk to that person, maybe you learn something about them. Uh, that that to me speaks to the anonymous kind of mob nature of how it's easy to go after people right now online as part of this anonymous mob and, and to behave in ways towards an individual that you wouldn't behave if you were sitting face to face with them at dinner, you know, you wouldn't treat them the same way you do online. It's that, it's that losing your personality, like you said, like losing your personal um, uh, values,
0: so to and speak. And that tracks the Milgram experiment like, pretty directly, right? When they had there was four versions of the original experiment, one, the, the other, the, the target person was in a room, that, and they couldn't speak. They could pound on the wall, but that was it. Um, and you had very high compliance, torturing them all the way on that example. Then there was the example, you couldn't see them, but you could hear them. Compliance went down a little bit. Then there was an example where you could see them. They were in the same room with you. Compliance went down even further. And then there was an example actually where you had to hold their hand down on the shock pad to force them to get shocked. Um, and still 20% of the people complied, but that was the lowest number. Um, and that, that speaks to exactly what you're saying, Kerry, which is like that face-to-face interaction or like the closer you are to your victim, the, the harder it is to, um, to inflict pain.
6: And, you know, the Nazis learned after the first massacre, like where they had the cops were assigned to a Jew and then they walked them into the woods and then shot them like they said, oh, that's a bad way to do it. And they slowly worked their way up the gas chambers. So that's why it worked much better when they had people bring them into the woods and then someone else shoots them. So they bring them into the woods, lay them down and they shoot them in the back of the neck like you don't even make eye contact, let alone talk to them. It makes it faceless.
0: Yeah. And, you and, mean, I, you know, yeah. one of the things that I was thinking was like this plus the Milgram stuff. Like I was just thinking, if you are an evil authoritarian, um, there's like a, there's a blueprint for how to make sure people you like how to maximize, uh, compliance, right. And make sure you set up a, a certain culture and certain procedures and, you know, remove the victims in this way and split the orders up among different people. And like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dark science but it the information is there Um, maybe we
6: shouldn't be talking about this in public they might treat it as an instruction manual
0: i think unfortunately i think they already know
5: yeah i think that since it seems that the natural inclination for people is to go in one of these directions i think brett weinstein and i think carrie you shared the thing about the about the groups and hunting the witches like there's basically different, few different types of people that end up in certain situations. And I think that's the benefit of reading something like this, because all the people here on this panel probably would fall into some of those different groups. Um, And I know I probably would fall into one of the groups, maybe a group that I don't want to be a part of. But if I have a better understanding of what those groups are and what has happened, I can better recognize it and even work against my own inclination to do a wrong thing as well. That's you exactly
0: know, right. No, go ahead.
9: Mm-hmm. Okay.
5: Well okay. one of
2: the things we need to do is to avoid getting sucked into the demonization of our opponents. That that really seems to be the key thing is once you've decided that those people are so bad or they are so destructive that they have to be completely wiped out. I mean, And I can feel that in myself sometimes when I start seeing these thugs rioting, and I'm almost cheering for a semi to just plow through and send them all over the place because I just get to the point where it's almost like I've lost sight of the fact that those are individual people. Most of them are probably teenagers or 20-somethings, dumb as mud, have no real appreciation for what they're doing. But I feel myself getting mad enough that I'd almost cheer somebody on that was going after them. You know, and and I have to pull back and and learn not to dehumanize them.
1: Yes, that's the that's the difference I think between someone who's trying to live consciously and and someone who's just possessed by ideology or emotions or passions or what have you. Because it's it's um, like I was saying earlier about at the very beginning. But a lot of the people I think who believe what I used to believe, my old belief system. I don't think based on my experience when I was preaching that stuff I don't think there's a lot of self-reflection there and there's not what Jordan Peterson would call like uh, acknowledging your shadow and getting to know your shadow self so that you can fight against your shadows it's like if you don't have any acknowledgement or awareness of the fact that every human is capable of evil and that you're capable of evil, if you're not aware of that, and you think of yourself as like this truly, this is why and I have a disagreement where I say, I don't believe that people are good or bad. I just think we're all capable of both. And some of us live in one place more than the other. But um,
0: uh, uh, hold on, we need to clarify. Okay, I don't think anyone's pure evil or pure good. I just think it's appropriate linguistically to say so and so is evil if they've 98% 98% of what they do is evil, <laughs> you can say that without worrying about walking back your words and like, I don't want to call him evil. Like, well, it, it's a shortcut to be like, Hitler's yeah. evil. <laughs> yeah, maybe he was really nice to the waiter one time. It like, it doesn't matter. Like, in general, we can throw him in the evil camp. That's fine. I know what you're um,
1: saying. I think it's just more of a self, um, it's it's a boundary for me personally, because like, was it, is it Kristen was saying? I don't, or Christine, I don't want to Christina. get to the, Christina, sorry. I don't want to get to the point where it's just really easy for me to demonize people who believe what I used to believe and just think of them as evil. I do believe they're being possessed by an evil belief system. And I believe they are doing evil in the world. But I think a lot of them are, it's, they think they truly believe they're doing good. Like Thomas was saying earlier, it's almost scarier than this because the the, the I this particular, uh, manifestation of this ideology is is I think it's I think it's more dangerous than anything we've seen yet because it has effectively convinced so many people that it's good that you know it's somehow they weaponized defense they they took everything that it wasn't and they managed to create this mantle and this mask that's what it is it it is what it isn't right it is this good uh, moral Anti-racist, anti-sexist, um, all for equality, and it's none of those things. It's the exact opposite, but it's done such a good job of selling itself as that. So it's almost scarier to me than what Hitler was pushing, because, it you know people people are are bought into it and believe, you know th- this is their this is their moral belief system for a lot of people that this is how they show they're a good person is by preaching this stuff.
0: Well, keep in mind though. I mean, well, first of all. I want a clip of Christina saying "dumb as mud" so that I can play it over and over again in the right circumstances. <laughs> um, but keep in mind, it's hard for us to it's hard for us to try and empathize or like understand what Germans in Nazi Germany were thinking and feeling, and and you can get blamed for being a sympathizer for doing that. I, I think I think actually the author even mentioned this. Like, no, the idea is to understand them, and and I think part of the understanding is. They believed they were doing good as well. You know, Laura Higgins in in chat just said to me, well, Carter's judging people based on their works. Yes, that's what I'm judging you based on. That's what you should judge people based on, not what they intend. Many of the Nazis intended good. They felt like they were doing good. They were completely wrong. Um, They felt like the Jews were evil and they needed to be wiped off the face of the earth and blah, blah, blah. But those were all moral beliefs. They believed this as morally good, just like many people on the left believe that all white people are inherently evil and whiteness is a sin and should be like, it's the same, same thing. So I don't think it's helpful to say like, well, in our case, we have people who are morally convinced. They were all morally convinced. They all had a moral argument. That's what you used to justify. That's why you just No, me. I think
1: they had a moral. Ar- I said that earlier. I do think they had a moral argument. That's why I said it's good to, to look back. at That I'm just saying now, like Thomas said earlier, the moral argument is even more advanced now.
3: Oh, like totally,
1: these people. Totally it agree. It was with hard for the. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It was hard for them to do this and to justify this. They had to get shit faced drunk. A lot of these guys, but, but. Now it's evolved, it's advanced to the degree where, like Thomas was saying, it almost scares me about how much easier it would be to get people who buy into the ideology today to do some of this. Well,
0: the, the good people in the ideology, I think, the, the good left, the, I'm using good in quotes, but the, the well-meaning people joining the leftist crazy train, um, they're the people who get drunk, right? They're the people who shoot you but get drunk afterwards. It doesn't really help, but um, you know what? I, can I read a quote? This is not from the book, but then I'm gonna read a quote from the book. This quote is from, I know you guys have probably seen this. Project Veritas did this undercover thing and they had one of, I think it was one of Bernie Sanders field organizers. His name was Kyle Jurek. Kyle Jurek said, so, so the, the journalist prompted him. The journalist said, guys like that, and he meant liberals. Liberals, what are we gonna do with liberals basically? And Jurek responded, gulag. And then with a laugh, he said, liberals get the fucking wall first. That's what he said. Now, that mentality to me is exactly the mentality. Look at how, look at how Nazi Germany, there was, there was a spot in this book. I think uh, my book was page 180, where they listed the three main threats that were identified to Nazi Germany, of Nazi Germany. Now, one of them was Marxism. Obviously, they were fighting the Marxists, fine. But the other two you will recognize (laughs) as shared with the left. Here's the quote. The main threat of healthy awareness of the need for territorial expansion and racial purity came from doctrines propagating the essential equality of mankind. The threat was doctrines propagating the essential equality. They threw Marx into that because he claims equality, right? Even though he's a collectivist. The first such doctrine was Christianity, spread by the Jew Paul. The second was liberalism emerging from the French Revolution, the uprising of the racially inferior instigated by the Jew-ridden Freemasons. So I see the left now, and it's like, oh, you're two big enemies, Christianity and liberalism. Those are your big enemies. In fact, you're saying liberals get the wall first. This is their message. Um, I don't – there's very little – daylight between the positions of the Nazis and the radical left right now.
5: Now, and one thing I was also thinking about, with, with along with what Kerry was saying, and if this is your belief system, and it's almost like a religion to you, what happens if you something comes up, and you have to move outside of America? You have no more religion, because you're living in a country where you may not be the majority population. So what would happen if a white liberal SJW moved to Japan? What would they do with their lives? What would they fight against? And that just- (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) I mean, it trips me out because it's, it's like, if you have a belief system, you should be able to hold that belief system on Mars. But if your belief system suddenly changes based on the fact that you're in a different country or maybe even in a different neighborhood Mm -hmm. i can imagine having a belief system that is so shallow that it's dependent on the nation in which you live
1: do you think they might recognize then that a lot of what they call white privilege is majority privilege if they were living in japan
5: yeah someone mentioned (laughs) that made me think that because um i mean if you cross the, the whole racism and power argument, if you cross the tracks and you're a white person who is now in a majority minority, weird, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> uh, neighborhood, do you suddenly have no ability to be racist because you are now amongst a group of people who outnumber you and have literal power over like, how does that work? I mean, we can do that neighborhood to neighborhood across different railroad tracks, much less outside of a country. So how, your 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 belief system is predicated on where you happen to be standing right now. I actually think that they would hold
0: fast to the white European Christian hetero cis males bad philosophy, no matter where they are. Um, that's, I, I think it's difficult to have that. I've spent a lot of time in Japan. I think you've been there as well. Like it's difficult to be a white guy in Japan and think that white privilege is everywhere in the world because it's certainly not in Japan. Um, But uh, I think they, I think they're generally, I think they're generally just wanting to tear down the West. And, and it, and actually there are the same people in Europe. There's a lot of European nations with the the same, um, you know, the same Marxist revolutionary ideology. So I, I don't know. I think, I think maybe they would be in Japan and, still be yelling about trump like they'd they'd be yelling about orange man bad from tokyo
6: i mean i I think they would be there's there's you know white sjw's in south africa in johannesburg protesting george floyd walking around with black lives matter shirts what white is eight percent of the population like how do you get people to do that there
5: yeah yeah, and I, I think that in South Africa, I don't know, it kind of fell off my radar, but I know that there was a movement to um, appropriate the lands of the white farmers there, which sounded very much like what happened to the Kulaks and what happened to the Gujarati in the Congo, I think, to where they they, they started pushing those middlemen minorities out of the um, economy. And I happened to see something recently where there were people lined up for food in South Africa, so I don't know how far they've gone with that, or what's going on if they if if they've actually gone as far as appropriating that land, and now are running out of food because the farmers are gone and not farming anymore. But it seems like some of that same pattern is happening down there.
0: Keith, do you know? I know you know a little bit about what's going on. So
5: yeah, they're they're well down that
6: Thomas. Um, They've been taking over white farms and handing them to, to black people. And the majority of them fail. It's difficult to farm there. Um, so that's been going on for uh, two decades or so yeah. in South Africa. Um, it's a very, you know, like look at it, like Kerry always says, you can't fight racism with racism. Like South Africa is entirely fighting the apartheid racism with way more racism. It's just black against white now.
9: Well, the saddest thing about all of it is that we've wit, you know we know from history and we witness the horrors over and over and we can learn and we study the psychology and all of it and we're still repeating the same thing it's just like can't stand it
0: there's if you want not to like there's disturbing parts of this book but if you want to be super disturbed and you're interested in south africa there's a book that I read recently that I actually had, I think I put it down several times because it was so disturbing. Uh, it's called Kill the Boar. Um, that it's uh, it, it's about the farm attacks and um, the level of brutality in South Africa right now is, uh, it's worse than what you're reading about in Ordinary Men, I'll just leave it at that.
6: Renata just said that boar is farmer in Afrikaans. Um, right. So- Tell you something what i know is because my girlfriend lived there for 33 years like born and raised there and uh she left about 10 years after mandela took over because of what was happening and now she's saying the same thing that carter said on the last episode about china like she wants to leave again she's like this looks exactly like south africa looked in like the late 80s when she was in high school like this is getting scary and she's like i'm like i don't want to give up yet i don't want to give up yet She's like, we're going to move to Portugal. We got to get out of here now. I see this coming.
0: Preferably, we all move to a state somewhere. Um, can, I want to thank uh, 2A Self-Defense Law, by the way, who just super chatted us. And I'm going to read her super chat um, or his. I actually don't know uh, the gender. Good conversation. I'm sorry, I cannot join the conversation on Zoom. It keeps saying that my email is bad. My belief system is thankful for this group of individuals. Uh, we'll figure out your zoom later but next next time you can join the chat but
2: uh... hey, my zoom completely kicked off for a while have we talked about how are, we've got this whole ministry of propaganda with google and cnn and msnbc who are basically the the propaganda arm of the Marxists and the identitarians in the US right now. And yeah, you know, there are people who believe that uh, Rayshard Brooks was just sleeping in his car in the Wendy's parking lot and the cops just walked up. And-
0: you broke up at the end, but uh, to answer your question, uh, we haven't really, I think Tamara alluded to it a little bit. Um, but uh, we haven't really talked about that too much. But it's a great point because um, they. Th- this is the thing that um, this is the thing with fascism, uh, and I'm going to compare our current system to moving in a fascist direction and slash, a fascist slash oligarchical direction, rather than a uh, pure socialist direction. In pure socialism or pure communism, the media is literally owned by the state, right? Like in, in the Soviet Union, you had, you know you had the KGB and then you had some organizations that like pretended to be neutral but they're kind of controlled by the KGB and everyone knew it and like it, everything was kind of literally owned by the government um but in in a fascist or a uh in more of an oligarchy you have the pretense of private ownership but you have everyone ideologically ideologically aligned with um the government right and yeah, and Google and Facebook and Twitter. And, and you know, you don't need to look any farther than uh, just, I was, uh, my wife just brought this up this morning, something about the guys that were, remember the two doctors that were banned from YouTube because they, they disagreed, they were California doctors? I mean, think about it. I, I said this to her, she was asking about it, and I said, oh, yeah, they were banned from YouTube because they went against the government narrative. And I realized, well, wait a minute, <laughs> like, that's true. It wasn't YouTube's narrative. I mean, it was but it was the government narrative and YouTube explicitly was like, well, we believe the WHO and we're going to follow the WHO narrative. And like, if you go against that narrative, we ban you. Um, So you have, you don't actually need private companies to be uh, explicitly owned by the state in order to be in bed enough with the state for, for quote, rational reasons. Like there's practical reasons why they have to obey the state and, you know they want they want business they want the right kind of regulations they want to be uh left alone they don't like mean, the state has a lot of power culture's gone that way but uh I think it's a huge concern christina and actually I think it's one of the one of the scariest things because I don't know <laughs> this is they control all the zombies like all that that silent majority that's paving the road to auschwitz they're directed by all those companies that you just mentioned? We,
8: we, just got, we just got the mandate for mask wearing. This is sort of making me think of that. So everyone has to wear the mask um, and they're putting the onus on businesses. It's not like they're going to arrest you. In fact, you have a, a list that you can, you don't even have to show proof of, but the businesses won't let you in if you don't have one. And I'm thinking this is just training us to get to the point where this vaccine, I, I know I'm getting into weird territory, but this vaccine, which has not been tested very well, very for very long, is going to then become, um, uh, you know, the businesses, you won't be able to travel, you won't be able to do A, B or C. And it's not that it's the government's rule or the government mandating it, it's they're putting it on the businesses to not to expect you to have it. So you can do any of these various things. And I, I, it's just, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg of what will be coming on down the line. Maybe I'm paranoid, but there you go. No, not I, think, it's, I, agree.
6: It's, um, I just want to say uh, it's not that the businesses are doing it. It's still a government mandate, but they're using businesses to be the police because they know it's not enforceable. There's just not enough police, but if that's they start exactly getting, right. they get the health department to like come down on a restaurant if right. they don't follow it. Like they're trying to pit business owners against their customers as if they're police. That's an evil and, and way. That is,
8: yeah. And that's what the, the, the restaurant here, restaurant tours around me uh, that I've seen say, you know, it's now on us, it, it's on us. And we have to enforce this because the government's not going to, but if they, if we don't, we will be shut down. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's a slippery slope. Think about yeah, what Keith this is does right, psycho-
0: they're basically deputizing everyone, right? They're deputizing yeah. the entire health department, businesses. They're just, they're just, yeah, they're outsourcing well, police. Well, think about
1: people. what this does to people psychologically, too, because it's on the, it, I think it does a couple things. On the one hand, like you said, Carter, they're deputizing people almost to turn other people in. And I was on a thread on Instagram yesterday where there's this small shop, it's a tea shop in Seattle, where apparently the owner had posted a sign saying, no masks allowed. I don't want you to wear your mask in my shop uh, with medical exceptions of course but he was trying to encourage no mask wearing and instead of just not going there like on the flip side if a store says you must wear a mask and if if, if let's say i'm a person who's opposed to that well i just wouldn't go there and he, instead of just not going there a mob formed they've uh they're both bu- they bullied him online hundreds of abusive messages they've contacted every every shop in seattle that he distributes tea and coffee to and two at least that i know of have denounced him now and are no longer going to do business with him um and the comments from people in the threads were just it's like it's like um what you talked about earlier manny about like when, when people get kind of used to a certain behavior, it's not normal at first, but then it becomes normalized. So there's all these people in the thread who are acting as some kind of authority, like police, and they're in there saying like, just put on your effing mask, you know? It's like, whoa, dude, like, wh- why are you here bothering this? Just don't go to his shop. Why do you care? It's one little small business. But this this desire to all pile on and say, we're gonna force this on you we think this is moral and you're immoral for not doing it, you know, it really freaks me out. So psychologically, on the one hand, I think it's, I think it's turning some people into little authoritarian enforcers who enjoy, who are getting off on escalating, uh, controlling behavior over others. There's a councilwoman here in my little town who has been calling the cops on businesses that she counts the people who go in, and she calls the cops if they go over the fifty percent capacity. Um, but it, you know, she fought against us being able to reopen in the first place. But once she was outvoted, then it's like, well, I'm going to call the cops. And so there are some people. I think of her. It's it's psychologically, it's turning them into little Nazis. But then on the other hand, psychologically looking at people wearing masks all the time, I wonder about this when I see it. So my, um, yeah, I hate it. And I, it's so, it, it depersonalizes human, it depersonalizes humanity. And so yesterday outside of my local coffee shop, there's a group of women, they're all wearing masks. And I believe fully you, you do what makes you feel safe. I don't judge you for wearing it. Just the, it's, I'm just saying that looking at it, it, America looks different to me now. And so there was a group of women wearing masks and one of them had a face shield on and my boyfriend was he used to live in Korea he's like this looks so much like Korea everywhere we go now looks like Korea where everyone's wearing the mask all the time and now even the face shields which are pretty popular there and it, it there's something about that I think it just I don't know what the effects are yet but I think collectively the way that it's affecting us to just see people it's kind of sanitized and removed and don't touch people and don't you know there's something about that that helps us to dehumanize one another i think
8: can i just say one thing i have a son i have a son who is very introverted and he is in college and he said this is just putting another level of social anxiety on all of us, he said, not you know, certainly the people who are more outgoing, but also as people who are introverted. He goes, that's just one more level I have to get past in order to interact with people. Um, I find it very disturbing that you can't smile at people in the grocery store because you can't tell they can't tell if you're smiling. I I just pull my mask down and 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 start smiling at them. You know, I mean, I'm just like, I I can't not connect with people. I've always done it. I've, it, and it just it's it. I always get the the strange feeling I'm about to rob the store when I pull it I just don't, I don't know. It's just so it does disgusting. make you feel like a
0: bandit, right? To have yeah. a, to you I, pull your mask down. I, but you know, um, Carrie, the the first point you made was about um their their masks like getting people to be a little authoritarians, like kind of policing people. And I think actually that's actually the first, that's a minor first step to that slippery slope I talked about earlier, where like once you've Once you've done something bad to one person, then you have to justify that they deserved it and therefore you can do more next time. I think actually they're starting that path well before being asked to execute someone. They're starting them on that path way, way back. Like, oh, first just condemn them morally, first destroy their business. And then you're gonna have, people are gonna rationalize. Well, I don't wanna be, I just shut that person's business down or I just caused a mob to go after them. I would be a bad person if they didn't deserve it. So they must deserve it. So now, you know, they're, they, they've got, they're ready to take that next step the next time that this comes up. And I think that the depersonalization thing, um, I mean, obviously masks depersonalize. You, you, a lot of communication is through facial expressions. Exactly. Those are gone. Um, and the other thing that they do is you know, humans are, humans are both threats and assets. Like they're like, you need humans in a society. You you need to have love and interaction and just regular old trade and communication, but they could also kill you. They could be carrying a parasite. Like humans are both. And I think what the mask one of the things that the masks do, does is really emphasizes humans as a threat. It really others people to use the social justice, like it others people and makes you, it puts you in this mentality of, oh, instead of meeting someone and like wanting to shake their hand and getting to know them, every person is, is perceived as a threat. And that becomes much easier later when you're asked to mistreat someone. Well, everyone's a threat to me. So um, it's easy to justify that you need to mistreat someone. I think you're spot
5: on. Yeah, do we have any Seinfeld fans here? I Uh, know which clip you're talking about,
1: I think. Yeah,
5: so it reminded Uh me so much of an old Seinfeld episode where Kramer went for a walk for AIDS and he's walking with everybody and he doesn't feel like wearing a ribbon. And these two (laughs) call him out, ends up getting beat up in the alley because he won't wear the ribbon, even though he's there walking with them. And that reminds me of all this stuff to where that whole conformity. And then it also reminded me something really weird that I picked up on um, in the book. Um, for me, it was page 166, where I was talking about the F scale and all that. And one of the things that the personality traits that they assigned to some of these people was an exaggerated concern with sexuality. I read Dinesh D'Souza's book about the big lie and he goes through parts of what the brown shirts did. And for some reason, the brown shirts were the, uh, like the Antifa of the Nazi. They went around beating people up. Um, For some reason, there were a lot of gay men in the brown shirts and I probably can get, you know, canceled for even bringing this up, but what is it about an increased concern with sexuality, the F scale, and what we saw with some of those brown shirts and making people wear age ribbons? Is there a connection there? I have no idea. I don't know enough psychology behind any of that, but that team, that term, term? But that theme, I'm sorry, that theme keeps coming up when I keep reading these things.
8: Did anybody ever see Jojo Rabbit? Not yet. I no. highly recommend it. It is a satire, and it is a precious story in the end. But it is about a, but that is part of the part of it. Uh, Thomas is, is a character who is a gay brown shirt. And he actually has a very important role, but I, I recommend it for everyone, especially. It's a little bit lighthearted, if it can be, during that time of of history. Uh, all of us watched it, we we with some hesitation, I must say, because it it, it is quite satirical at first. But I would recommend it.
0: You know, I I, I um, not I don't want to sound like a prude, because I'm not a prude, <laughs> but uh. You know, I think part of the obsession with sexuality um, is I think it's an intentional uh, tearing down of of values, um, because it's if you look at how how do I want to say this? Okay, People are viewed as. people are viewed much more as animals. So they want to turn off thinking and they want you to view people as animals. And and a a way to view an animal is like you have drives, right? You're driven by your sexual desires and your desire for food and your desire for X, Y, and Z. And there's um, there's no expectation that an animal curbs any emotional desires and acts on some higher moral plane. An animal just goes out and ruts in the field, and you know, tears after whatever rabbit they want and eats it or whatever. That's that's how animals behave. And I think there's some, I think there's uh, something inherent in a lot of these ideologies. Uh, partly because if you don't believe in individualism, then what value do people have as individuals? Like none, right? People people are just members of the collective. They're fodder for the collective. And I think there's something about getting people to accept that. Is is viewing people as animals. And so you have to really take any sexually quote deviant behavior and spotlight it as like a look look at how these people are having sex in a way that you might not approve of or you might think is weird or um or just even highlighting uh highlighting uh hedonism, right? Highlighting hedonism as a as a way to view other people as hedonistic animals because while all that stuff is I'm not prude, hedonism is is bad hedonism is not a good philosophy (laughs) it doesn't lead to happiness at the end it's not a it's not a moral philosophy just be a hedonist right um and so i I actually i'm if some of that is just their their way to like take a jab at kind of traditional values remember christianity is is one of their targets um i I I don't know i know that's not very articulate but does anyone have any thoughts there
1: i have a lot uh I, well, I, I kind of think that it's, uh, for me, I've mentioned this to you before, Carter, but it makes me think of the of, of Augustine and a lecture that I heard about freedom and how um, in, in culture, we are sold this idea currently that freedom is about like no boundaries. But the problem with no boundaries is it's like with postmodernism, anything goes. And so you're in this endless constant pursuit of something that can't be attained. It's almost like, so with hedonism, I view it as, um, with hedonism, it's almost like you can never reach, you're in pursuit of something that can't be found and you're compelled to continue pushing the boundaries. And um, whereas in in the lecture I heard, he talked about Christianity being the boundaries from which you could have like greater freedom within boundaries Um, Almost like, think of it this way, and I don't know if I'm explaining well, he, uh, think of an artist, okay, so the artists who have the greatest talent have, have, whether you're talking about a musician or someone who's painting, they've learned how to create art within rules and structure and boundaries, and those rules and structure allow their talent to come forth and to create incredible things. When you remove those boundaries and rules, then you get stuff like Jackson Pollock, where it's just, let me just splatter paint everywhere and, you know, pee on a picture of Christ or whatever. And that's art and you're, and it's just constantly. So the boundaries I think actually bring forth greater freedom and greater um, expressions of beauty because you're, because you are constrained and you're having to find ways within those constraints to illustrate to illustrate something, it's I, I don't I, maybe I'm no. You know, on. you know
0: what I should have said. Like, I should have used the word personal responsibility. It's it's a because a lot of the, their obsession is not just with sexuality or it's it's consequence free behavior. It's it's they want to absolve you of because with because with freedom, freedom only works with responsibility. You right. can't have freedom without responsibility. If you can't take personal responsibility for your actions, your freedom is self destructive. And so I think they're trying to move everyone into these two camps where like, you can behave free as long as you don't accept any personal responsibility. And let's highlight that and try and get people to do that. Or you can accept our non-freedom. That's the other way you can go. Those are the allowable well, ways to go.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure about that, but, but one, one thing about the hedonism is that, and this goes to what Thomas was saying about an obsession with sexuality, um, I think, that uh, hedonism is one thing that people in my world, when I was in SJW, definitely pursued. And I would say, in my opinion, in they put it in the place of God. So whether that was sexual pursuits or um, drugs and drinking, um, just taking things to the excess and and getting kinkier and kinkier, it was kind of seen as a badge of coolness to what is your kink, what is your fetish? Like things just got more and more outlandish with people. I mean, there was a comedian I used to represent who was a part of a kink community where, I mean, they would take her, a pretty famous comedian and put a bag over her head and take her out naked in the street with like, I'm, I'm just talking about really kind of degrading stuff with like on a chain and that was supposed to be somehow getting off on being publicly humili- humiliated, like just a lot of sex stuff that just kept pushing the boundaries. And I, and I, I felt like, I, I, I think there's some strange overlap there with this, this social justice ideology because there is an absence of something positive and beautiful to worship. And so the, the sermon I heard today was about um, kind of how, the study of humans, right? Are we are we rational beings? Some people, you know, like Descartes, I think, "Therefore I am." Are we rational beings, or are we? Um, there were a couple of different options he gave, but one was: Are we created to worship? Are we created to think? Are we, what what were we are we here for? What is man's purpose? What is man? And so he kind of talked about how, like, if we are beings that are created to worship, that are created to take delight in the world, then if you, you can, as a, from a Christian point of view, and I realize not all are gonna go with me here, but just bear with me, you can take delight in something that you were, a Christian would say you were, you were created to take delight in, and, or you can take delight in all of these kind of base human small gods, like your own sexuality, you can be obsessed with the body, you can be obsessed with um, drunkenness or, or um, drugs, or just kind of escaping yourself and, um, and I think that, that a lot of SJWs engage in that. And last thing I'll say, um, they do participate in, that passage you were talking about, Thomas, is a great passage. It said, uh, their investigations led them to compile a list of the crucial traits um, of the authoritarian personality, rigid adherence to conventional values, submissiveness to authority figures, aggressiveness toward outgroups, opposition to introspection, reflection and creative, opposition to introspection, reflection and creativity, a tendency to superstition and stereotyping, preoccupation with power and toughness, destructiveness and cynicism, Uh, uh, the, the, the disposition to believe that wild and dangerous things go on in the world, the projection outward of unconscious emotional impulses and exaggerated concern with sexuality. And it says they concluded that the that this anti-democratic authoritarian kind of person harbors strong underlying aggressive impulses and that fascist movements allow him to project this aggression through sanctioned violence against ideologically targeted outgroups. Well, that's Antifa to a T, Thomas. I mean, it's like I used, the, the first time I saw video of Antifa with people putting on, they're putting on masks and they're going out and they're beating people up. And we're seeing this happening daily now in cities. They're getting off on it. These are people who want, they're aggressive and this is giving them an outlet for it and saying, this is justified, like you can go and be aggressive in this way. And um, to just last little point, to take it back to the sexuality part, one of the first professors I saw on a video, this is from a couple years ago, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was a professor, an SJW professor, who was um, at a protest for, I think it was the Proud Boys. And she was screaming and engaging in, I think she was shoving them and engaging in violence. That woman, that college professor, SJW in part of the Antifa mob, they found her online in her spare time when she wasn't a professor. She was, she had a whole blog and website where she did sex videos dressed as a lobster and like a bathtub, like completely hedonistic. I know Jeanette's laughing, but just like over the top, like put, I think a lot of these people have like some type of really weird kink that's like taking the place for, of, of something more beautiful and meaningful for them. It's like, just continually pushing the sexual envelope. Um, it okay, has a long with the, rant. With the, with the, well, no, the, hold on, hold on.
0: <laughs> I, I want to. There's something. I, here's the problem. Hedonism requires that you do not have the ability to project and see the consequences of your behavior. The only way you can continue to be a hedonist. Uh, by the way, I'm not against you. Want to have kinks and sex stuff? Go do your thing. That's fine. M- my point is, reveling in that having, reveling in a hedonistic lifestyle and making that your focus requires that you don't think. It requires that you don't think long-term planning is is ultimately necessary. You need to see the conclusion of your ideas. If I say it's impossible to be racist against white people, I have to be able to think, how will that play out in decades? I have to be able to look long-term and see the conclusion of my ideas hedonism is a short circuit where you do not ever consider the long-term consequences of anything you do and i think there's a i think that's a there's a reason why that's encouraged because they don't want you they want you to fall into a mode of never thinking about never thinking things through never thinking about the long-term consequences whether it's how you're having sex who you're having sex with or whether it's shoot this person don't worry about the long-term consequences. Like you need to do, you have to live in the moment without ever being able to long-term plan. And ultimately long-term planning is what, like that's what your reasoning mind is for. It's for long-term planning, right? That, that's what it's for. It's not for figuring out the best way to have sex right now. It's for long-term planning. It's for planting your crops so you can harvest them next year. All right? Like that, that's what your mind is for. And they need to turn that off. And, and to turn it off, They need to get you to indulge sensation and not do any long-term planning. Maybe that's more clear. I'll shut up about this
8: issue.
0: (laughs) Do you think that um, that
2: maybe that's tied into how they demonize any attempt to teach people how to escape poverty? Like if you try to teach financial responsibility to poor people, all of a sudden you're blaming the victim.
5: Yeah, I do. Yeah, I saw something where... Hitler had said something about one of the main goals is to get rid of these 10 commandments that the Jews had perpetrated on the world. And I think it's seven out of 10 of those commandments are what you cannot do or should not do. And that restrictive nature of religion or Christianity in this specific sense is probably why people in that camp are pushing against it because it's like, screw you. I should be able to do whatever I want. How can you tell me not what not to do, which ties into, I think, what you were saying, Carter, with hedonism, which is a form of freedom from consequences and being able to do whatever you want to do.
1: Thank you. I'm sorry, guys. I went on such a ramble. I had so much, and it, it, it probably didn't make a lot of sense, but thank you.
3: No, it I did help me, me understand a lot of a lot of people that I know and what what they're going on. They actually also impose this on other people around them. Like for example, um, I know somebody who's a total hedonist, social justice warrior. Um, she's married to my son, and he's type one diabetic. He has to drink, though. He's losing his vision, but he will keep doing what the mob wants him to do. It's absolutely insane. Now I understand it because of what you said, Carrie.
0: Thank you. We let me do a shout out to Mary Little who just gave us a super chat. Thank you. Well,
3: Thank the you,
0: thing Mary. is that um, that's all.
2: The, the hedonism is the only place where you have any freedom left.
0: Right. So you don't have. You can't say what you want. You don't own anything. You don't have rights, but you're allowed to. Um, that's a good way to look at it too, right? Like you're squeezing a balloon, like they're they're tightening this part of it, and it's, they got to make room somewhere, or the balloon will pop. So, uh, so go ahead.
5: Um, yeah. Lobster sit in your bathtub, you'll be fine.
0: Yeah. I mean, i've I've talked to a th- I've talked to a therapist about um, this behavior generally because it fascinates me, and the 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 interesting thing that that his opinion was about a lot of this stuff is that. People that get into these, we'll just call them out of the ordinary sexual behavior. <laughs> um, in general fall into two camps. There's people who you they usually have some trauma. Everyone has some kind of trauma from childhood usually, but they usually have some kind of issues in the past psychologically. And they use, they use their, their some people are kind of aware of their issues and they're using their sexual kinks to, to help heal, actually. They're trying to work through it. Um, and they're using the, and they're very aware, and it's very conscious, according to this therapist. But most people, apparently, are just re-injuring themselves. They're they're replaying this, this psychological trauma over and over and over and over and over again in their sexual life. And uh, as adults, sex is one of the only areas in which we are allowed to, quote, play. Like, when you're a child, you play. You imagine things all the time. You do stuff all the time. When you're an adult, there is no, there's no play. You can't, if you, like, skip rope down the street and... Have a sparkler and you're 40. People will lock you up like you're insane, right? I, I except for Carrie will do that. Um, but for adults, most of their play comes um comes in the realm of sex, and so a lot of them they they'll re-traumatize themselves over and over and over again, playing out whatever childhood issue that you know had that translated into their sex life. Um, and we know a lot of people in the social. The reason I'm bringing this up is we know a lot of people in the social justice community um are completely uninterested in health like in uh helping their mental health they embrace mental health issues and trauma as a badge of honor so they're not trying to move past them so in order to kind of they're going to stay in that mode of just re-traumatizing themselves over and over and over again
1: did we come did to an ending to
0: a <laughs> conversation about sex <laughs>
1: I don't know. Thomas brought us here.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Thomas. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. By the way, for those of you who don't know, Thomas is the guy who writes articles now on our Medium page. So go read Thomas's articles. Um, I went to been talking over someone. Was someone just talking? Sorry. Now,
2: I was just saying that, that part of it is that you need to embrace your inner victim. I mean, you have to keep re-victimizing yourself because nobody's gonna do it for you. You Yeah, you gotta. Yeah.
1: I think you froze up again, Christina, sorry.
5: She's a victim of bad internet service.
1: You're a victim of bad internet service,
0: Thomas says. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the patriarchy that's working against you, Christina. Sorry about that.
6: Well, as interesting as the lobster in the bathtub conversation was, thinking of changing
0: the subject. Um, Thank you, please, Keith. Change the subject. Just so bring us back to where I we
6: thought. Are. What what Carrie was talking about? She brought up the uh, the the one week class they took called uh, "Race is the Basis of Our Worldview." So it seems to me like that class is now like mandatory in government school, right? <laughs> it's not one week. It's 12 years of it. Um, yep. And then, so then the next question is uh, on, uh, I wrote it down, page 178 of my version. Uh, they talk about Walter Gross. He's the head of the party's Office of Racial Politics. So I read that and I thought, uh, how long is it going to be before we have an Office of Racial Politics in D.C.?
5: We kind of already do. Um, I've just read something. Ibram Kendi, I think he's a, a scholar. He is now part of an anti racist unit in DC. I don't know oh, wow. what department it's part of or how it if it has any actual power or if it's just a think tank, but he's um, he had just moved up there and that's his job.
1: You, his name, by the way, everyone's gonna be hearing you're gonna hear it as much as you hear Robin D'Angelo next. I predict that book of his is the next one that they're gonna be pushing out everywhere.
0: Didn't we just read something by him on uh Covfefe recently? I think I feel like we did. He did
1: a video called What's the Difference Between Being Being Non Racist and being anti-racist?
0: <laughs>
7: anti-racist is about, racist. Got it. Bad part about it is that. It's like the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you treat people that are not racist like they are racist, eventually it leads to everybody becoming racist. That's yeah. what's happening. And it, and it's—I mean, it's not just in that example, but that's—it's very sad that we're going in that route.
6: It, it uh, seems like to be to to uh, be anti-racist is racist, like by definition.
7: It is. It's
1: exactly what it is. They just call it anti-racist, just like they call Antifa, which they behave like fascists. They call it anti-fascist. I mean, they're great with the names.
0: <laughs> I feel like the Nazis would call themselves like the Jewish Salvation Party now. That, that would be their, if they were branded <laughs> by today's modern leftists, they would, that would be their name.
5: Or imagine a place where you can say whatever you want, but they actually call it unsafe when it's really actually safe.
0: Well, it's unsafe right here. <laughs> Can
1: you imagine that?: Oh, I get it.
11: <laughs> I get it. I get a couple couple things I wanted to bring up, just since everybody covered like so much neat stuff along the way. And yes, Carrie, getting hammered. I, that was one thing I was going to bring up with how they desensitized them to the violence because I read quite a bit of other stuff about that. But one thing that came up really early was about the record keeping. Um, And I was talking to Thomas about this online, but I never got much into detail on it. Um, Something I suspect about the record keeping that the Japanese also did in this horrific group of theirs, Unit 731, medical experiments, weapons testing, they used prisoners to test horrific stuff. And the record keeping was absolutely meticulous. And um, one thing with the Nazis keeping records, I think a big chunk of it was they were so convinced that they were going to win and reshape the world, tied into consequences like you all just covered, that they thought there was no consequences to keeping these records because they thought that they were never, even in a bajillion years, were going to lose. So they weren't scared of anyone finding the records. So that's one little thing I wanted to bring up. And then um, as far as, uh, I think it was Thomas again that brought it up, being away from home, that was something that they used with the police, because you think in their head, they grabbed all these trainees in Hamburg, shipped them off to Poland five, seven hours from home. You can refuse, but the only, you only got the other 100 guys in your unit there. And you have these anonymous people, you know, you get away from home for a year, doing a horrific exercise every two to five days. The person that left isn't even there anymore. So that's kind of the two things I wanted to bring up before, because we are going sort of long like usual, but that's fine, like it always is. So that's all I wanted to add to this because everybody covered so much of the stuff I had written down anyway.
9: Um, I I wanted to touch on the levels of violence that were being described, um, and it kind of has to do with, with what Kent was talking about too. Um, that some of them just seemed to resign, you know, like what options do they have being away from home and um, uh, peer pressure and things like that. And, you know, being or, or uh, appearing manly in front of, you know, their peers and so on. But the levels of violence were all very different. There were some that were disgusted um, and kind of remained disgusted throughout others did their you know, followed orders, did the job and others made a sport of it. And like a really disturbing parts where, um, they started doing the hunts and the bunkers and the cellars, and, you know, other hiding spots, it was a competition, a thrill, you know, like it really evolved into something else. Um, and how they kept the records, uh, or maybe this was part of the testimony. I can't remember exactly. I listened to the audio. Um, that they uh, uh, basically said that they were shooting strangers and the destitute as if that was a justification that was really disturbing to me.
11: Yeah. You
6: know, they, they talked about it as macho, like like that. It was macho to do the shooting and the people who wouldn't shoot. They were cowards. They were weak. Um, and, and it's really the other way around. Like to me, the, the brave one is the one, the, the very few people who used principle to say this is wrong. I'm not going to do it. But that was rare.
9: And,
8: rare. and even
9: those people, when they were testifying or, you know, um, maybe keeping their records or, or talking about it, they were not sickened by the inhumanity of mistreating other fellow human beings. They were just disturbed and disgusted by the messiness of it all um and i I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts on that that that
3: really struck me one man's testimony was that um one person would shoot the mother i don't know if you remember this part of the book and that person would shoot the child and the the word that he used for um for it in german meant savior he was saving the child from a life without the mother he was justifying it that way
0: yeah there was a lot of rationalizations to justify this behavior, and that that was one of the ones that stuck out to me as well, Eva. That was that was pretty bad.
7: I mean, the scary part, if you think about it, is fortunately we're not in that situation, right? We aren't. But if we were in that situation, how hard would it be to not follow the lead of everybody else? Because I think there was a lot of people that didn't want to follow through, but they just weren't able. I mean, what do you do? You say, "Well, I try to hide and go over there, and they don't see me that I'm not shooting anybody." That's the only thing I felt I could do. Some people were doing that, and they're still participating, obviously. But what we have to prevent is getting to the point where we're in that situation, right, where you have so much power over you that now you're just—I mean—I have to follow the lead because what else can I do? And, well, I think
0: uh, this, this circles back to—go ahead, sorry. No, oh, no. I was just going to say this, what you're saying, um, Manuel, is this, this, cir- this circles back to what Keith was saying earlier about German society generally. And it, it actually circles back to what I think is probably the most important thing for trying to save our country, which is how we raise our children. So you can raise, and actually, Milgram talked about this in his book. Um, when you raise your kids in such a way that they learn that authority is correct by virtue of the fact that it's in authority. And I mean, I don't want to go down a parroting, a parenting rat hole right now, but I totally could right? of when you teach your kids that, that it's right, because I said so. And when you employ force to to punish and not, and not encourage independent thought and reason, you end up with a child much more likely to obey authority and conform to peer pressure. And the only way to stop this is to have generations of kids who have their own moral compass and are, and are willing to, say, to step out and say, I don't care that the authority says this. I don't care about the peer pressure. I won't do it. And if you look at the Milgram experiment, actually some of the groups of people that were more likely to say no were um people in the clergy like people who had a moral like fa- like a a sense of moral compass that did not come from society that was their own moral compass and they were much more i'm not shocking that dude i don't care what you just asked me to do i don't care that you're the authority um and i think in germany you have basically the opposite of independent moral responsibility and just culturally generally um and so when when if everyone is that susceptible to authority and peer pressure, just as a matter of, of culture, then when a bad guy gets in charge, a lot of really bad things can happen. And I think the only way to really save the, the society that we love is to have a, this is again why culture is upstream of politics, it's culture and to have a philosophy that drove that culture that's based on you are responsible for your moral choices. You need to decide what's right and wrong. We will help you think and give you the tools to do it, but it is your choice make right. You don't have to listen to authority. Like, And I don't see that message actually to our kids at all. I see the opposite message being transmitted to our kids, frankly, from both sides of the aisle.
5: It reminds me, um, Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago mentioned that the people that seem to Resist the most were the people who were actually religious. And I think it was a religious person who asked him a question. I can't remember the specific question that changed him into his new form of thinking where he started looking at all the things he did on the way that contributed to the complete situation of the the Soviet union, as opposed to just being in a situation he had no control over.
6: Yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, The government schools in the United States are actually designed from the German school system, right? When they first started public schools, they based it on the late 1800 German school model, which is designed to produce two kinds of people, two kinds of adults, good factory workers and good soldiers. Like, that's the whole purpose of government school.
0: And by the way, it did. It did produce really good soldiers and really good factory workers.
6: And, and it's working today. It still works. It's producing SJWs.
0: This is depressing now.
1: What's the positive note we're ending on today, Carter? <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the positive note?
0: <laughs> Your positivity. You always have a positive note to end on. You
6: pick the book, Carrie.
1: <laughs> I picked the book. Uh, if I had a positive note, it, I don't know. I know I got kind of out there with my thoughts today were kind of jumbled. I have a lot of things in my head at once. I'm trying to pull it apart. My positive note would be that I guess I've I've fallen into the I I, I guess I've pre, prior to today's sermon I think I was thinking about humans as rational thinking beings. As I was taking notes from the sermon, Carter, I was thinking of you. I was like, oh, okay, Carter's in this group. Reason, right? <laughs> but then when I got when he got to the part about humans as as being worshippers, I was thinking. I can totally see that too. We, he, how do you define man? What separates us from beasts, right? What separates us from animals? Is it because we think? Is it because we worship? Is it because we have emotions? What is it? Um, the idea of thinking about man as, as worshipful is interesting to me. And I think even if you're, you don't have a belief in a deity or something larger than yourself, um, you can still find what are those positive things to, fo- to worship and to take delight in in your life. Because I think those will, I think those are very grounding. And then, otherwise, if you don't, then I think, I think people will sometimes, you're going to find something to worship. You're going to find something to delight in. And, and there's a lot of negative, unhealthy things you can focus on, take worshiping or taking delight in. And I guess my positive note would be like you were saying, the people who, um, Thomas, I think, was saying, that Solzhenitsyn said the people who managed to resist a bit had a had some type of maybe a belief in something greater than themselves I think I think a belief in something greater than yourself or even just the things that you worship and that you hold dear and that you take delight in um, can be things that ground you and and kind of inoculate you from from losing a sense of self from losing your personal belief system um, when you're in a mob or when you're in an environment that's telling you to do these things that you know to be evil. I don't know. I don't know if that made sense. I tried well, to be positive. Carrie,
0: today. um, <laughs> you know, Beverly C. in chat suggests that the positive note we end on is that lobsters are happy sexual creatures. Um, <laughs> no, so, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> you guys, I'm I was kidding.
4: gonna
0: look uh, up this
1: teacher, this professor, or don't, because it's
2: really disturbing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um they my let me just atheist them i wonder what jordan answer. peterson would say to- yeah, yeah oh yeah jordan peterson's a different kind of lobster yeah uh look i don't i i i think pretty clearly the answer i mean man is a rational being is the answer like man is the only being that uses his primary means of survival is is reason We don't have claws we can't run fast we don't have thick hides we can't do much like we suck we die in reality unless we use our functioning reasoning minds to manipulate the environment for us to survive so to me that's a pretty closed book question it's pretty obvious but um I, i i don't think that uh i don't think that we need to be if i'm trying to end on a positive note my positive note is actually this community, because this community, although it's small, is representative of a much larger silent majority. And this is the last place in the world where you have freedom of movement, the right to bear arms, still have a First Amendment, kind of, uh, in most <laughs> cases. And and we have higher standards of living than most of the world. So. If there's going to be a spot that's carved out in the world where the torch of freedom survives and doesn't get extinguished, it will be somewhere in the United States. So maybe it's not all the states, but I think we have like, I hope that the people in our community wouldn't pull that trigger. Um, In fact, uh, I had a conversation with someone who's uh, normally in chat, but buddy of mine the other day, I won't reveal who he was, but, you know, he was like, look, here are the trigger points. If it gets this bad, I'm sending my family over here to this plate in the mountains. And like, I'm, I'm going to take a few out with me. Like I've had a good life. I've got lots of tactical training. I've got lots of weapons. I'm fighting. And uh, I think that the, the people in this community, and I don't think this community is the only people in the US. This is a very small sampling of people that are like-minded. Uh, I think we'll all fight. I know I've already talked to many people in our chat about fighting alongside them. We just need to fight back. And, um, and we're armed. Read about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. They didn't win, but read about what just a few weapons and the will to fight, how, how, much, how much of an effect that can have, even if it's a small number of people fighting an authoritarian regime. Because I'm telling you what, if, the, if that police battalion 101 started getting picked off by snipers... Uh, they would start having second thoughts about whether or not they want to keep doing what they're doing. And I think this community has the potential to stand up to this.
1: Well, and stand up with words
3: first. First I mean, words. I to get to that point. First words. I'm
0: not saying words. go right to violence, but we've been talking about violence the whole time. So, you know,
6: it, it, it may come to that. And I, I agree. You know, um, my positive note is that this community exists and that we can learn from history. There are people that can learn from history. So we're not doomed to repeat it. Like these people here all understand what happened. And it, it could come to that. And I was reading an article today. They were comparing different cities. Uh, I live in Florida. Like Florida has over two million concealed weapon license holders. To to and the the like Orlando and Miami have not had what's happened in Chicago and New York City. And like, it's just not happening. And, it, you know, it's speculation a little bit. But the guy was analyzing different places and he said, it's probably related. You know, they estimate seven million households in Florida have weapons. But it, It'd be harder to happen here, I think. It's, it's common here. You know, you walk in a bar and somebody will casually mention they have a gun on them. Like, that's normal.
0: Yeah. I do think it requires us consolidating physically over the next few decades. I don't know when. But, like, I do think I do think being spread out, uh, you can, they can pick us off more easily yeah. with their laws. But... Uh, A
1: tweet girl in the chat says that it's it started for her with saying no. Yep. And uh, that's why I keep this cross-stitch here. I don't know if you could see this. Uh, my no cross-stitch... <laughs> Which is? Are <laughs>
0: awesome. you laughing? I don't know why it's awesome, but I love <laughs> because that. Because
1: for some people, saying no is hard, and you have to learn how to say no. And you know, saying no to my old belief system and refusing to go along with it was huge for me. It took me a long time to be able to do that. And but you know, Solzhenitsyn who Thomas mentioned earlier, I, I believe it's him. He has a quote about, um, "It's like um, let the lie come into the world." And there's some other part there I'm forgetting. He says, but not through me. Like I will not speak it. And that's a huge, huge first step for people.
0: Yep. All right, we should wrap it up. We should thank Julianne. Uh, she just sent us another super chat. She says, I'm learning from you, love safe space. Welcome, Julianne. Yeah. Carrie, do we wanna we wanna reveal what the next book is?
1: I think we already did. Why don't you go ahead since it's your pick?
6: It's a real positive
0: So, what, what, Heath?
6: I said the next book is a real positive note.
0: The next book is a positive note, yeah. Uh, It is my pick. I apologize in advance that it is long. Um, Don't skip over the long speech in the middle that you're gonna want to skip over, Um, because it's very important. But we're gonna read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I challenge you, I know there's gonna be people that are gonna push back and they're gonna say, I've heard all these negative things about Ayn Rand, blah, 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 blah. I'm gonna say two things at the outset. I'm not a Randroid. I like a lot of what she said. I'm not telling you guys, this isn't the Bible. This is just a book. It's a good book with a lot of good ideas that should be thought-provoking. And the other thing I'm gonna say is, everyone who's told you how horrible Rand is hasn't read her, probably. Um, Almost everyone that has a problem with her, they haven't read her. Uh, in fact, I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I love this story. One of my friends, 20 years ago, uh, was doing this commute thing, where it's called rideshare in the Bay Area. Where you just wait at a, you just wait on one side of a bridge at a little stop, and anyone can come along and pick you up while they're going into the city during rush hour. And then you get, um, they get to be in the high occupancy vehicle lane and go faster, and then they drop you off downtown. So you get rides with random people all the time. And she was reading Atlas Shrugged, and. She got into the car and she sat there, she's very quiet. She wasn't like an interacting kind of person. So she sat there reading and the driver looked at her. This person, by the way, the, the, uh, the person reading it was a, what they would now call a person of color. Um, he's reading the book and the driver said, how can you read that filth? She's racist, blah, 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 blah started spouting. And my friend said, oh, I haven't gotten to that part yet. Where's the, I don't see the, the racism yet. Where is that? Show me, and I, so I can, I, you know, my friend just recommended me, I don't want to read a racist book. And the person's response was, well, I don't know, I've never read it. Never read it. Oh, okay, sure. So uh, Ayn Rand is the antidote to racism. Um, so anyway, we're going to read Atlas Shrugged. I don't know when we're going to set the date. We'll probably give you a little extra time because it's a lot to get done in months, unless you're Keith who read it straight without sleeping. Oh, and like the last
6: time i read it yeah. and it's a good book and it's on deck i have it right here and and as you can see this copy has been read before yeah. i still i'll then I'll, I'll just tell people uh i still remember the day carter came into work and said have you ever read this book by ann Rand called atlas shrugged <laughs> yeah
0: that's a great book yep yep all right so on that note are we are we good carrie
1: i want to know what jeanette's dog's name is
8: and then we can go okay it's Axel. Hi, Axel. <laughs> okay. All
0: right. There's your positive note to the show. Yeah. Axel's the positive note.
8: <laughs> always. a dog's always a positive note. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. And um, oh boy. we will uh, return tomorrow for a coffee break at the regular time, 11 a.m. Pacific. So we'll see you then.
8: Thanks, everybody. It was mm-hmm. fun. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com/donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our unsafe space chat on Telegram. See you there.
10: Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral pay no attention to it for your protection the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation please avoid any contact with these individuals I have calculated a 97.8 percent chance that these are all Russian bots if you think about it no one should be allowed to express opinions But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Please connect to CNN to receive the latest version of your belief system software. All hail Chris Cuomo. That last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.